America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Ridamar. Hello, Akil. Great to be with you again, Andy. Thank you. We've been talking about uh, the, we had the series on bullets dodged and uh, bullets not dodged. And a lot of these things took place in the lame duck period. Um, but the lame duck period is kind of an interesting uh, concept in, in American constitutional thought, isn't it? And under-theorized. Think about it this way. Um, there's a lot of conversation about how we should run our elections, uh, presidential elections in particular. So um, should we have the Electoral College or should we move to a direct popular vote of some sort? Um, and in later episodes, I'm sure we'll talk about the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which is a, a very interesting and, and problematic um, uh, proposal. I was involved actually in... Uh, early uh, thinking about it um, way back in uh, 2001. Um, but imagine that you had the most perfect election imaginable uh, under um, whatever you think is, is perfect conditions. We um, make it easy for people to vote. We let them vote over m several days. We have uh, a good registration system. Uh, we have good campaign finance rules. We've got um, uh, voters who are paying attention and listening to each other, and it's issue-based, and you have spectacular debates that really tee up the, 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 the differences among the candidates in, a, in an extraordinary way. Imagine you just ran the most perfect election you could imagine. Just like the one we just had. <laughs> um, but, okay, so we, we have a great election... But, and, and imagine that there were. There's almost no question about the outcome. We, uh, uh, it's a kind of uncontested, and 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 we count the votes very quickly, and we figure out who won. Um, and 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 imagine that the person who did win does in fact take office. Um, but here's the wrinkle. Imagine that the person took office, let's say, ten years after the election. We did that every time. So, okay, we vote today, and it's absolutely perfect, and then we're going to implement the results 10 years from now. <laughs> um, and, um, and you think, wow, that, is that democracy? Is that self-government of any sort? And once you see that, because you giggled, um, that it wouldn't make any sense for 10 years, well, now we're talking about the lame duck period, because what sense does it make that we vote? And let's imagine that, we all know what the outcome of the vote is within 48 hours of the election, and then we wait six months. You know, that's not 10 years, but why are we waiting six months? And in America, uh, early in our constitutional system, um, uh, actually, there, a presidential election occurred in November, and inauguration didn't happen until March. And the new Congress didn't even come into existence actually until December. And by that, I don't mean the December immediately following the November election. One month later, I mean that the new Congress didn't come into uh, existence in, in general. Um, uh, th there were exceptions until 13 months after the election. So we have an election in November. This is early in American history. Um, and the, the new president... Um, let's imagine we vote the old uh, the, the incumbent out. Um, uh, we vote for change. We vote for that in November, and the change doesn't occur until March. And that's for the presidency. And we vote. Let's imagine we we vote all the bums out in in Congress because we're disappointed with them. We vote a new set of bums in. <laughs> uh, uh, but but the new guys don't come in until the following. December, 13 months later, does that make any sense? And you say, that's weird. And in fact, and we'll talk about this, there was a constitutional amendment to, to change all of that, but we still have a lame duck of some considerable length. In the last election, we voted in November, at the beginning of November, first Tuesday after the first Monday, and we don't see the fruits of that for that House of Representatives in the Senate until January 3rd, um, and we don't see the presidential fruits of that till January 20th. Meanwhile, basically the guy who has the mandate doesn't have the power, and the, in the presidency in particular, I'm, I'm talking about Biden, and the guy who has the power, Trump 
has lost the mandate. That's astounding, this concept that the new Congress wouldn't come in for another 13 months. And did that cause problems in uh, in American history early on? Now, that wasn't constitutionally required. Um, The Constitution basically said, unless the legislature sets another date, they're going to meet at the beginning of December every year. And sometimes they set a different date. But even then, the new Congress wouldn't come into session uh, typically until early March um, with the new president, even though that's the earliest they could come in, uh, even though the uh, election took place in November. I assume that part of this had to do with the difficulty of travel. Is that correct? Um, I think part of it was about planting seasons and things like that. And um, they voted in November because that's after the harvest. So I do think that was something about an agricultural calendar driving the whole thing. Um, and, And of course, if the outcome of the election isn't certain, maybe you do need time to carefully count the votes and recount the votes. And, oh, the Electoral College introduces all sorts of complexities because they're, as we've talked about in previous episodes, these these different dates. Okay, well, there's the election day, and then there's the day that the Electoral College actually meets in the um, 50 states and, and, and D.C., all on the same day, but in 51 different places. Oh, and then there's uh, the famous or infamous uh, date in which those electoral votes are actually um, opened and counted in, in Congress, um, which for m- most elections is ceremonial, but um, I guess not always. We, j- we just saw. So it seems like intuitively there might be a purpose to the lame duck period because of the results of the election can take a while to be processed. And now actually we're seeing that it's taking longer to count the votes, or at least it did this election for various reasons. Um, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean you need, you know, five months like they had, um, you know, before. Um, but still, one could understand the reason for some lame duck period. One could, but let's now imagine that we actually uh, lived in a very well-behaved democracy in which at least when it's really clear who's won and who's lost, the loser acknowledges that immediately, which actually happens in America today for lots of elections. Within 48 hours, the loser has graciously conceded. And by the way, if if you needed lame ducks always, how is it that Britain manages, for example, just to pick one very prominent example, uh, how is it that Britain manages to avoid all this? Within... Um, uh, days, sometimes within hours of the voting, the uh, loser concedes, and uh, and if the incumbents have been ousted, uh, basically um, someone leaves 10 Downing Street and someone else moves into 10 Downing Street w- within days, sometimes within hours. So, so it, there are ways uh, that other democracies manage to uh, reduce the period between the election and uh, the, uh, the new administration. And my thought is America actually might be able to move closer to that model um, without a constitutional amendment. And by the way, since I mentioned constitutional amendments, we already did have one constitutional amendment at the beginning of the 20th century that was about all of this. It's actually called the lame duck amendment. 20th Amendment. Right. And actually, you know probably as much about it as I do. Tell us what you know. Well, I know that the uh, 20th Amendment moves the uh, date of the inauguration of the president to uh, noon uh, on January 20th. Um, It's unclear what noon means. Um, Does it mean noon Eastern time? Does it mean noon wherever the president-elect happens to be located? Um, does it mean noon and where the capital is? doesn't really say. Um, I don't know that that's all that important that it doesn't say. Well, it's important in theory because in theory we have one and only one president at any given time. There's an, uh, an old joke about uh, definition of uh, uh, Unitarians. Uh, Unitarians are people who believe there is at most one God. <laughs> uh, so, um, and we have at most one president 
Um, and I think we always have one president, seamlessly. The king is dead, long live the king. There should never be a nanosecond, in fact, when we don't have a president, but we should always have one and only one president. We shouldn't have this Avignon Pope idea when two people um, are both claiming to be Pope at the same time. And since you mentioned noon, and it's a word that appears in the 20th Amendment itself. Um, the 20th Amendment changed a practice in which presidents took office on March 4th, and it accelerated it, moved it forward in time to January 20th. So elections are happening in November, and now this is shortening the period between November elections and the new administration. So it used to be March 4th. Now it's January 20th, thanks to the 20th Amendment. It changes also the rules for the, the House and Senate in ways that we can talk about. But it does use a particular word, doesn't it? Noon. Um, but yeah, it doesn't tell us noon where I would think it would be noon. You know, you could say, well, it's, it's like the Jimmy Buffett song or whatever. It's five o'clock somewhere. It, it's noon somewhere. Um, but I don't think they mean Greenwich Mean Time. I think they probably do mean the national capital, wherever that might be. Um, but here's the interesting thing in the Biden inauguration that our audience will remember. Um, so th um, think back to actually um, when he took his oath of office and when the chief, administered by the Chief Justice of the United States, and when the Chief Justice of the United States referred to him as Mr. President, and the band, an official band, a government band, played Hail to the Chief, and if memory serves, all of that was a few minutes before noon. So I would say technically Donald Trump was still present when the Chief Justice of the United States referred to Joseph R. Biden as Mr. President, because that was a few minutes before noon, if memory serves. Well, it's interesting because the 20th Amendment doesn't really say when the new president takes office. It says when the old president leaves. But right. remember, you, if you add to that my structural idea based on, on English, um, the English experience, the king is dead, long live the king, there's never a nanosecond of discontinuity between one chief executive in the next. So if one presidency ends, the next one begins. Um, and in any event, um, when it comes to Biden, Donald Trump was still president at 11.59 a.m. on January 20th, which was a few minutes after the chief justice was referring to Joe Biden as Mr. President. Yeah, it was 11.49. So um, <laughs> I, I took but, a look but, at that. But who's counting? Yes. <laughs> okay. But, you know, it's interesting, though. I, you know, I don't want to get too hung up on this. what's really a fine point. But Section 1 says the terms of the president and the vice president shall end at noon on the 20th day of January. And then it doesn't say anything else. And then it says later, and the terms of their successors shall then begin. But then later in Section 3, it says if at the time fixed for the beginning of the term of the president, the president-elect shall have died. And then it goes on to talk about the vice president. Mm -hmm. Well, what is the time? Who fixes the time? Is they referring to section one? I think so. I think that's just a, you know how lawmakers write a kind of clumsy cross-reference. Let me say one other thing since you know we're, we're getting into the, the, the fine points. This is, a, this is a podcast for, for con law nerds. You know? This is like car talk for, for con law guys and gals. Um, so um, our audience, which is a very sophisticated audience, knows that um, way back in... Uh, the, the backdrop of Marbury versus Madison, the whole issue was the midnight judges. You know, it's a right. phrase you, you people may have learned even in, in AP history in high school or something. That's because I think there was a thought back at the, um, uh, in an earlier period that actually the presidency ended at midnight um, and not noon. So... Um, uh, um, so this is a lot like when Cinderella, you know, when, uh, when it's the magic moment at which the, the carriage poofs back into a pumpkin and the white horses poof back into to white mice. Um, and uh, back in the days of, of John Adams, um, who was a bit of a sore loser, he, and he, he ended, uh, did leave, but he did attend Jefferson's inaugural. He actually snuck out of town. Um, sound familiar, but the, uh, the thought was his presidency formally ends at midnight, 
Hence the idea that he, ha he had to get all his final actions, the, the, the judges and, and other officials whom he was appointing, um, they, they, those commissions had to issue before midnight on his last day because back then, I think the thought in general was the Constitution didn't specify the exact nanosecond, but I think the understanding was midnight and this 20th Amendment called the Lame Duck Amendment for the presidency changes that to noon. So a couple of ch changes. We go from midnight to noon. We go from March 4th to January 20th. And then here's a third, which shortens the lame duck. Here's a third thing that that 20th Amendment does. It has a different a changing of the guard moment, a different end of one term, beginning of the next term for the Congress than the president. So uh, you tell us, Andy, since you're the textual expert, what it says about all that. Yeah, so that's uh, January 3rd at noon for the senators and representatives. So 17 days before. Um, Correct. And of course, um, it's... it's why, why, why is that? Well, I'm playing Socratic law professor here. Well, for one thing, the, um, the Congress has to open the, uh, open the envelopes and, and ratify the election. Right. So it's the new Congress that's doing that. Correct. Than the old Congress. Correct. And the, earlier, it was actually... Uh, the lame duck Congress that, for example, opened the envelopes when um, Adams was running in a rematch against Jefferson in 1800. It was the lame duck Congress that had been electorally repudiated, but they were the ones breaking the tie between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr back in 1801. And yet we, we recently, you know, went through this, but when we went through it, it was really a ministerial job that the, that the Congress had, which is basically just to say, you know, this is how many votes there were, and that's it. Um, Josh Hawley notwithstanding. You know, and anyone should be able to, to, to agree on, on, on this. It's the new Congress and not the lame duck Congress that has the mandate to um, actually cert, uh, to, 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 to notarize, in effect, to, to, to rubber stamp. this um, uh, electoral college verdict. But of course, there's a situation where it's not a rubber stamp, which if, if one candidate has not achieved 270 Correct. electoral votes, then the House has to pick the president uh, and the uh, Senate the vice president. And then and, and back in, in the, uh, 1800, 1801, there was a tie. And, and so then the, the House of Representatives had to break that tie, voting in a particular way by, by state. But... Back then, it was the old house and the 20th Amendment, the lame duck amendment at the beginning of the 20th century said, oh, no, it should be the new house, um, spring chickens and not lame ducks. Well, and I think you can see how there's, you know, to the degree that there's legitimacy, which it does seem to lack a little legitimacy in any case, particularly because the house is not acting as the democratic body that it is. It's acting more like the Senate because each state delegation gets one vote. Um, but in any case, in that scenario, but in any case... A scenario when no one has an electoral college majority, when either there's a tie or just no one um, um, uh, uh, um, has a majority. But in any case, there's more legitimacy to reflecting the will of the electorate if the house that has just been elected by that electorate mm -hmm. is choosing the president rather than a house that was elected two years ago. Right. So I think that, that the 20th Amendment does you know, help a little bit uh, or significantly, but although I think it doesn't solve this problem of this, you know, arcane method of, of choosing a president in but this rare situation. But once you say that, Andy, again, we come back to that thought experiment that I had at the beginning. Um, uh, it's not just that a, a certain body was elected democratically. They have to be elected recently. Because you know, your point is, gee, the new Congress has more legitimacy than the old. And once we take that idea, I'm saying, well, gee, as soon as the people have voted and it's clear who they voted for, it just seems odd to have such a odd. Uh, it seems odd to have such a long lame duck in any event, because um, yes, uh, the person who's holding over was elected, but um, a long time ago, or or and here's maybe the more precise way to put it: since then, there's been a new election. And if that person has been ousted in favor of someone else, it does seem odd that that person continues to hold over for a long time. And of course, there have been at least two occasions in American history where this caused 
significant problems, the secession winter and then um, the Great Depression. Exactly so. So um, uh, the lame duck amendment is a response to just that problem. Could you uh, elaborate on, on what happened in those, in those uh, situations? Yeah, so um, uh, I think by, gen- by acclamation... Um, it's pers- it's basically thought that James Buchanan is one of the th- three or four worst presidents in American history. Some would say possibly the worst. Now, there's a lot of competition for that. Um, some would say it was Franklin Pierce. Some would say it was Andrew Johnson. And frankly, some, many, would say it's Donald Trump. Um, but here's the point. Uh, James Buchanan was pursuing all sorts of ridiculous pro-slavery policies, pushing slavery in the territories and not even paying attention um, uh, to uh, uh, what the will of the people in the territories was. Uh, Stephen Douglas said, let the people in territories vote in in Kansas, whether they want to be admitted as a free state or a slave state. That's the so-called popular sovereignty idea. Let the people in the territory decide. Um, And uh, James Buchanan ran a whole bunch of, of territorial elections or um, uh, that really weren't fair, and he didn't really care what, what, what the, the, the votes were. Um, and uh, so he doesn't run for re-election, uh, and, uh, but the election is in part a mandate, uh, a referendum, excuse me, on his policies, and a guy who runs very much against him wins, named Abraham Lincoln. He runs on a platform not just of, of uh, um, uh, having a fair elections among the, the people in the territory in Kansas. He says we shouldn't even be putting this to a, a vote in Kansas. We should have a rule that no, that slavery simply should not extend to virgin soil. Read our lips, no new slavery. That's the Republican Party platform, and he wins. And in response to that, on, in November of 1860, now it's complicated, the, there are three other people running and he doesn't get a popular majority, but he, he wins in the Electoral College. It's emphatically clear that he has an Electoral College majority, he's got the mandate. James Buchanan has been repudiated, in effect, in his policies by the electorate. And indeed, one of the people that Lincoln whooped was uh, um, Buchanan's vice president, uh, uh, Breckinridge. Um, so... James Buchanan has been repudiated, and yet he's in office all the way till March. And in the meantime, a bunch of southern states, led by South Carolina in December, purport to leave the Union. And Lincoln has the mandate, but no power. And Buchanan has the power, but no mandate. And he allows, actually, these secessionists to steal a march. He allows all sorts of bad things to happen. They, they start taking over federal forts and mobilizing, and he doesn't do anything. And um, so by the time Lincoln takes over um, in March, it's a very bad situation. So let's imagine today, it's just a total hypothetical. We're in the middle of a national crisis. Lots of people are dying from some pandemic disease. And the president of the United States isn't doing anything at all. And he's been repudiated by the voters. It's not just that his vice president was on the um, ticket. Let's imagine that he was on the ticket too. He's being reputed and he's not doing anything and, and people are dying and maybe not a few, tens of thousands of people are dying and he's got the power but no mandate um, and no interest perhaps apparently in do, doing anything about it. And the guy who does have the mandate, who really did win, has no power. And this is going on not just for day after day but week after week, month after month. Does that make any sense? So, so um, that's today, of course. Our audience will understand. But, but the problem first really manifests itself in a big way with secession winter. Lincoln has won. He's won on an anti-slavery platform. Um, and, of course, he doesn't believe in secession. He's going to make that emphatically clear in his first inaugural address. In the meantime, the pro-slavery president basically keeps pursuing pro-slavery policies and allows secessionists, treasonous traitors, um, to actually do all sorts of things that, in effect, are trying to undo that election, Lincoln's election, fair and square. The President of the United States is 
looking the other way while traitors try to, in effect, undo that election. Now you see some connections between 1860s secession winter and today. Now that's James Buchanan. That's one of the two uh, uh, real lame duck disasters, debacles, that lead to the, uh, the lame duck amendment. And then there's a second one later on. Again, a national catastrophe. Um, it's the Great Depression. Hoover's the president. Um, there's this problem, and he doesn't know how to solve it, and he basically does nothing. And that, there's a huge, lots of people are thrown out of work. That will never happen today, of course. Um, Hoover does nothing. He gets massively repudiated by the challenger, FDR, and yet we wait and wait and wait for months for this transition to occur, for FDR to take over in early March. In the meantime, COVID's getting worse. I mean, the depression's getting worse. It's the same thing you see. And, and, and by the way, we could talk about the economy as well as, as uh, public health issues. And, and FDR has the mandate, but not the power. And Hoover has the power, but not the mandate. In the meantime, you're just drifting for a long time. Uh, those of you who are movie fans, you know, it's like Casablanca. That the movie at the beginning, you know, when you, you finally, you, you get from Paris to Marseille and then from Marseille, you know, you get to Morocco and then over to Casablanca and then Casablanca, you're trying to get to Lisbon and, to, and from there to the New World, but in Casablanca, you wait. And wait. And wait. And wait. And wait. Exactly so. And that's actually the problem of the lame duck. And um, secession winter in the 1860s and um, depression winter in 1932-33, those are what motivate the lame duck amendment in the 1930s. Okay, so we've passed this amendment. Yes. And so now we so no longer mission have mission accomplished, right. problem solved, right? No more lame duck. <laughs> well, <laughs> not, not quite. So. Yes. Yes. So um, is there a solution, though? I mean, one would say that, well, you know, what if there's... Uh, you know, we have, as I mentioned before, we have to count the votes, can take time. What about, so let's say we've done that, but then, you know, the president-elect uh, needs time for his transition or, uh, um, or other things need to happen during, during the lame duck. Or, you know, or, right. or the president was elected for four years, why doesn't he get to serve for four years? So do you have any thoughts about how we might, it seems like the lame duck amendment didn't really solve all the problems. Right. It, um, it shrunk them, but it didn't solve them. But I think we can do even better. And, and how would that be? And we can do it without a constitutional amendment. And we can do it in ways that actually have a little flexibility built in uh, to deal with um, uh, unusual scenarios like um, uh, a real electoral uncertainty about who really did win. I think we can do all this stuff improvising and shortening the lame duck even further and eliminating some of the, the fairness concerns. Well, why, is it, why doesn't four years mean four years? Um, and we can become more British, in effect, because the Brits managed to do this better than we do, arguably. Um, I wrote a piece on this, uh, uh, and we'll put it up on, uh, on the website. It's called InstaGov. Um, here's the basic thought. Let's f let's f we'll talk about uh, lame duck congresspeople, of, uh, but first let's talk about um, lame duck um, presidents. If it's really clear who won the election within 48 hours and, and you had a decent incumbent who lost and who concedes that the other fellow wins, that other fellow could come in immediately with a snap of a finger by the uh, president who lost telling his Veep to re retire, resign immediately. Now the 25th Amendment comes into play. The incumbent president who lost names his opponent as the new vice president under the 25th Amendment, um, Section 2. And within a matter of hours, Congress, because there's special procedures under the 25th Amendment, confirms this person as the new vice president of the United States, which they should do because he's the person with the mandate, or she, and then the president steps down. And now the opponent is the acting president of the United States. It, uh, actually, the president of the United States, if, if the president actually um, uh, completely um, uh, uh, resigns. Uh, he could step aside under the 25th Amendment and temporarily hand over power to the person, or he could step down altogether. There, there are different provisions of the, of the 25th uh, Amendment, a resignation versus just a, a temporary handoff. And by the way, 
if there were any doubts about the election or all that, then he could say, okay, I'm just temporarily stepping down rather than um, uh, resigning altogether. And all of this is only for the lame duck period because formerly we're just filling out the rump of the incumbent's term um, and, and we still have to do the meeting of the Electoral College and the certification of the votes in, in, in early January and all the rest for the next four-year term, but we've got the winner now in place. Um, and now you say, oh, but the incumbent was entitled to four years. Yeah, but once the system is up and running, if he had won you know, four years earlier and, his, uh, and the person that he had beaten had, had been a good sport about the whole thing, he would have started early too. And then you say, oh, yeah, but people need time for their, to get their team in place and all the rest. But if you knew that these were the rules, you'd have your team in place already and maybe you'd actually tell the American people on election day who your team was, who was going to be your Secretary of State, who was going to be your Secretary of Transportation, and so on, because the Brits managed to do all of this. Um, and we could too, and I'll tell you one other thing, that we had a president who really, um, uh, in my view, he wasn't one of our best presidents, um, um, but he was a political scientist and he did study the Brits and he did look at them and say, they managed to do transitions quicker than ours. His name was Woodrow Wilson and he actually was going to implement a version of this uh, way back when. Uh, it's a little episode that uh, very few people know. He, he was elected in 1912. So, by the way, since he's elected in November of 1912, when does he start, Andy? I'm, I'm testing you. You're my, you're my prize student March here. of 1913. Exactly so. So he's elected in November of, of uh, 1912. He starts in March of, of 1913. He runs for re-election in December, excuse me, in November of, of 1916. He barely wins. Um, uh, it all comes down to California on the West Coast, and I think he wins by 30,000 votes or something but if against a guy named Charles Evans Hughes. With a platform of he kept us out of war. <laughs> exactly so. So there you go. Um, but he had a plan. If Hughes had won, he actually had a plan to make, Hughes would be the guy with the mandate. He would have no mandate um, whatsoever in that scenario, and he was going to basically bring Hughes in early. He was going to do that by telling his vice president, um, well, f first, by nominating Hughes to telling uh, his secretary of state, um, thanks very much, but uh, goodbye. So getting uh, uh, cashiering, sacking, um, firing his secretary of state. And this was in the days where the Presidential Succession Act that was in, in force at the time did not have the Speaker of the House as number three in line. Correct. It had the secretary of state next in line. So he, he fires the secretary of state. He immediately nominates the winner of the presidential election, Charles uh, um, uh, Evans Hughes, to be the new Secretary of State. Hughes needs to be confirmed by the Senate, but he should be confirmed in a snap because he's the guy with the mandate. Now he's third in line, president, vice president, Secretary of State. Now Wilson tells his vice president, a guy named Marshall, sorry, but you need to go. And Marshall's big claim to fame, I think, is he's the guy who said what America, what this country really needs is a good five-cent cigar. So, but, but, um, so uh, in this alternative, in, in, in this Wilson plan, which he didn't make public, but, but he actually sort of wrote it all out. So sacks the, the, um, the Secretary of State, appoints Hughes. Hughes gets confirmed, now tells his vice president to resign, and then he resigns. And now Charles Evans Hughes is acting president of the United States under, yes, the presidential succession statute passed in the 1880s that was then in place that actually provided president, vice president, secretary of state. That was the line of succession. And we could do that again today, by the way, with a statute. But in my version, using the 25th Amendment, we don't even technically need to change the presidential succession statute, although... In a future podcast, you and I do have to seriously talk about the Presidential Succession Act. And of course, um, under Wilson's plan, it's a little fraught because there's no vice president there, and there's no provision for getting another vice president because they don't have the 25th Amendment yet. So, uh, there would be, so the vice presidency would be vacant during the lame duck. Yes, and I can't remember um, whether there was a longer line of succession past the Secretary of State or not. Well, I think they were, the, according to the... Uh, when the cabinet departments were established. Okay. 
I'd have to double check that. Okay. Now, one other thing. Um, we've now we've only been talking about the presidential. Um, oh, and, and and in this hypothetical that I've been saying, okay, so now the person who won the election, you know, uh, has become the president because the guy who lost, the incumbent, um, has um, uh, told his veep to to resign, uh, appointed a new veep, the guy who won in November. Now the, the incumbent resigns. And, and the new president, of course, can pick his running mate as his new veep. And again, with a snap, the Senate can, um, and, the, and, the, and, and the House of Representatives under the 25th Amendment can confirm the new vice president. And remember, technically, this is only for the rump period. It's only between, let's say, November 10th and January 20th. And then on January 20th, we have you know, the formal inauguration for the next four years. And, and if, this, if these were the rules going forward for everyone, everyone would get their four-year term, basically, plus or minus maybe a couple of days or something, depending on how long it really took in any given election to, to properly count the votes and, and make the concession. Everyone gets their four-year terms. It's just they start earlier. If we know clearly who won, and if we don't, then this doesn't happen. And now you see, oh, it would matter a lot whether presidents really did the right thing and conceded or not and, and this is but but there the Brits managed to do all sorts of things by custom by convention by good manners and, and until Trump came along people thought oh you you really do concede um, um, and and you facilitate transitions um, and you have cabinet he, uh, and you have co confirmation hearings um, uh, uh, for the, 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 the new incoming cabinet and you give tours of the White House. You, you facilitate the transition in all sorts of ways. My inst I called it InstaGov, uh, this, this essay that I wrote uh, for Slate in 2010, which we'll put up on the podcast, uh, excuse me, in, in our, on our website, um, uh, is all based on just kind of um, uh, informal uh, uh, transition mechanisms to, to, to respect what the voters really did say what they really did decide, democracy, on election day. Now, what we haven't figured out yet, that, that, just for the presidency, and now I said for the vice presidency, and, and therefore for the cabinet, they can all be filled um, um, uh, 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 early. I haven't told you how we actually get the new House and the new Senate in place before January 3rd. So, yeah, it would seem to me that there would be some necessity to do that, um, because otherwise you have the, the old House and the, and the old Senate working with the new president, which seems like a little bit of a contradiction based on, you know, with this notion that the people's will should be heard sooner or should be followed sooner. Okay. But one other point I think we should make, um, some might be listening to this and saying, well, yes, the president-elect uh, is taking, taking office earlier, but if he only gets two terms you know, is this one of those terms? And then he couldn't run for re-election, but under the 22nd Amendment, um, he has to have served more than half, I believe, of, yeah, the, of the other president's you, term you basically before get, that would kick Yeah, in. you basically get 10 years rather than um, uh, eight. Um, and that deals with um, the problem, for example, of, of someone like Calvin, you know, a, a, a vice president who becomes president partway into someone else's term, a Calvin Coolidge, uh, um, uh, Lyndon Johnson, a uh, Gerald Ford, um, uh, um, uh, a Teddy Roosevelt. So, so partial terms are uh, addressed in uh, the two-term amendment. Yeah, so under that amendment, I think uh, Ford would only have been able to be elected once because he took over in 1975, right? So uh, a little bit. He had a little bit more than half of Nixon's right. second term left. Right. So Whereas he, LBJ um, was uh, 63, right? So that was later. Yeah. So he he could he oh that and that which is why of course he could have run in 68. He took himself out of the running after the New Hampshire primary, but he was completely eligible um, and would have had he won. Um, and and lived uh, uh, to the end, he would have served um, nine years. So getting back to Congress, um, before you detail your proposal on that, let me suggest that perhaps we do want a lame duck period for Congress. I mean, look what just happened during the lame duck period. We passed a COVID relief bill. That's something that wasn't able to be done for a long time. And one reason, might, you know, perhaps was the you know, somewhat depoliticization of the lame duck period in, in Congress. And in the movie Lincoln, you see that Lincoln, you know, uh, lobbies to get the 13th Amendment passed 
precisely because it's the lame duck period and that uh, members of Congress are able to vote their conscience you know, more perhaps than in the hyper-political periods before the election. And what one reason, you, know, you could say one is because they've just been voted out of office and they're so much smarter than, I don't know about that. A second is um, they've got two years before the next election. And if it's that idea that you have a good long time, that's going to be equally true um, when you have the, the spring chickens rather than the lame ducks. Um, it's just it's going to be the same. They've got two years till the next election, and, and this is the beginning, and, and maybe a, a, the honeymoon um, uh, idea. But that's why I began with my 10-year um, thought experiment. If you really believe in elections, it, it, it does really seem odd. We have these elections, and then we ignore them. Um, let, let's stick with the people, the, the incumbents that, um, I, I, let, let's stick with the officials that the, that the people really hated and voted out because they think they're corrupt or stupid or what have you. Then, then why do we have these elections, right. if, if that's the idea? No, I think, I think you're right. And, and in particular, I mean, under my proposal, the rationale is, what, is precisely because they're not responsive to the people that they therefore are doing would do a good job, and that's not right. the notion of democracy. And we might not even know that they're not responsive, because even if you say, oh, they're not just um, uh, uh, lame ducks, they, they've been uh, electorally spanked and repudiated, yeah, but they might want to run again as outsiders two years from now or four years from now or, or the rest. So, so, um, uh, so now the game becomes, if, if you buy the argument so far, we've got the, the actual winner of... November's election in place uh, as as president even before um, uh, inauguration day, and we've got that person's running mate in office as vice president even before inauguration day, before January twentieth, and we've got the new cabinet actually in place as well, um, um, but we don't yet have the the, the new. The, the winners of the Senate and the House in place in November. We're still waiting for January 3rd. Let's start with the Senate. The Senate, even today, um, operates with a version of this. People who lose resign and let the person who won, maybe who beat them, take office early. Here's how it works. The loser steps down. The governor of the state appoints an, an interim senator, and the person that the governor appoints is the person who won the election, even if that person is of the opposite party of the governor. This is a, just a matter of courtesy and convention. So the loser steps down early, before January 3rd, and the governor appoints as the interim senator the winner of the election. Easy as pie. So, and for the Senate, that's not a problem, and we, we actually already do that. It was sort of a, a variation of it when uh, Kamala Harris elect, was elected president, vice, vice president. president um, she, uh, you know, she she resigned her seat um, the other day, and uh, and the governor uh, appointed someone else, and they took office. Right, and of course that person hadn't run uh, for the Correct. Senate, but but it's easy as pie to say, okay, the challenger beat the incumbent. The incumbent graciously concedes. The incumbent steps down early. And part of the reason they do that is so that their successor has more seniority, in fact, um, um, and which helps the people of their state. And it's just a, it's a decent thing to do. It's a good government thing to do. It's a democratic thing to do because if it's clear what the people voted for, why are we waiting? You know, if, if 10 years doesn't make any sense, why does three months make any sense? Why not get the person with the mandate in power? Okay. The tricky thing is the House of Representatives because you can't ever fill House seats by appointment. The Constitution is very emphatic that the people who are members of the House of Representatives have to be elected by the voters. To just go back to the uh, original process by which the senators were appointed by the state legislatures? Maybe. You know, this, the Senate was never seen as sort of as directly democratic and accountable as the House. But even when we modified the Senate um, with the 17th Amendment, we provided for these um, interim gubernatorial uh, appointments, and we've never done that for the House of Representatives. Um, um, I'm not going to go into all the details in, in this podcast. Uh, our audience can, can read the details because we're going to put it up on the website. But just in a nutshell, um, on election day, 
um, we can actually technically run a double election for Congress. And technically, what we do is every single member of Congress, as a matter of convention, promises uh, um, uh, resigns uh, right be, uh, right before the election, or uh, and the, and the, the resignation can technically go into effect upon the uh, um, certification of my successor. So all 435 of them resign immediately. And election day technically is deciding two things. Who will be the representative starting January 3rd for the next two-year term and who fills out the rump of, of the remaining term, the interim term? Um, and it's the same person. And so, so when you're voting for Smith... The, let's say the incumbent is Jones. And Jones formally you know, says, I promise to resign as soon as my successor is picked. Um, uh, and, and if Jones wins the election, we're actually voting for Jones f for the two-year period, basically, starting on January 3rd, but also to fill out the rump of, uh, of, of the incumbent's term. And if the incumbent wins re-election, fine, he, he, he or she just continues uh, without interruption. So... We could do all of this. We could do it by, by convention, by which I mean just a custom, um, and it's a nonpartisan thing. And once it's in place, oh, they'll all get two years as well. They'll all have started a little bit. Yes, they'll, they'll end a little bit earlier, but they will also have started a little bit earlier. So it, it, instead of starting on January 3rd and leaving on January 3rd, as a practical matter, except in those weird Districts, and there were some of them this time around where the, the, uh, the races were too close to call. Instead of starting and ending on January 3rd, you basically start and end on November 15th, which makes sense because as soon as the people have voted, what are we waiting for? Does this cause any complications with the fact that, the, that while the Senate is considered to be a continuous body, that the House is not? And things don't always carry over from one a House session into the next in various various ways, action. So the House could be debating a bill, but you'd really have to wait until the new Congress in order to vote on it, or could you even vote on it? Would you have to repropose it? Seems like it might cause some problems with that. I think there are some complexities there, and boy, I wish I had thought about that back in 2010. So once again, Andy, you've uh, shown yourself to be um, and just a, a quite extraordinary law student, even though, in fact, you're a retired ophthalmologist. Um, but um, formally, uh, the term begins and ends on January 3rd. So formally, even in the House of Representatives, it's just no different than a, a bunch of um, uh, of of people um, uh, uh, dying and immediate or resigning and immediately being replaced in a series of special elections. You, you uh, it's just a, it's a more it's just faster way to, to or kind of more efficient way to do it. But but you're right. Formally, I. I have to admit that the term begins and ends on January 3rd and not November 15th. Right. So, I mean, I think given that the spirit is willing um, under the scenario, the scenario that you're proposing, it would probably take some additional house rules, you know, logistics. House budget. rules. Um, yeah. And really what it gets... So, for example, let's imagine that there was um, a, a real um, electoral um, uh, sea change... Um, and so the new Congress actually is going to involve a change of party control. So what that would mean is that f technically within one term of Congress, we switch speakers, which happens when there's a, a scandal or a death or um, a, a, another uh, resignation. We've had s changes of the gavel within a party, and, and in theory it could happen across parties, um, even within a congressional session. When George W. Bush was president, he started out with um, having control of the Senate, and then Jim Jeffords actually switches parties, and, and so uh, uh, a shift of party control, a different um, Senate majority leader. Those things can technically happen even now within a single Senate term or a single House term, a changing of the guard um, for speakership or uh, Senate majority control. Right, although with a particular legislation, it might be more complicated, but actually it could wind up being a positive because 
there might be some sense of a deadline to try to actually get something done by the end of the year before this, uh, you know, this House of of special election uh, appointed or uh, representatives, you know, turns into a pumpkin. Yeah, and and you can imagine different House rules. Okay, because you could say, well, suppose earlier in the term the House voted for X, and now the new people don't believe in X. So maybe the House rules change that 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 the House can can pull back. Um, uh, as a matter of internal House rules, uh, a bill that they voted for um, because they, 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 they no longer endorse it and they don't want the Senate to say, oh, yes, we agree to that because they don't do, uh, the, the House doesn't believe in that, uh, that bill anymore. So I think internal House rules might um, need to uh, be adjusted just a bit to, to deal with this new improvised structure. Um, so one thing that... The but, but, the, but the key idea is, oh... You don't necessarily need constitutional amendments for all these things. Right. Um, um, we can improvise uh, uh, just as, for example, um, before the direct election of senators, there were improvisations that led as a practical matter to direct election of senators in various states under thing called the Oregon Plan. For example, under the Oregon Plan, this is before the 17th Amendment, Here's what Oregon did, and it went through different versions. Um, um, the first version of the Oregon plan basically said, we're going to have a beauty contest, formally non-binding for who should be the senator, U.S. senator from Oregon. So we list on the ballot, people can vote for who they want. And as a matter of political honor, a, um, a, a lot of members of the state legislature would vote to ratify um, the people's choice. Because do you want to be uh, the kind of um, organ lawmaker that doesn't list, listen to, to the voters? That was version 1.0. Then version 2.0, oh, um, we have this um, beauty contest for uh, senatorial, U.S. senatorial preference, and you're running for state legislature, and three things appear on the ballot. Your name your party affiliation, and either P or not P, pledged or not pledged. You pledge to support the beauty contest nominee, even if it's a person of the opposite party. And you don't have to pledge, but are, you, are people going to vote for you if you basically say, oh, I don't care what you, the voters, think about U.S. Senate. Um, and then they, were, they went through even different versions in which the, the organ uh, of uh, 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 electorate basically tried to mandate... This is a little bit like the faithless elector issue. Tried to mandate that uh, legislators who had actually taken the pledge carry out the pledge. And I can't remember, but maybe there was even a version where even if you didn't take the pledge, you were um, you were obliged to do so. But but there was an improvisation by which Oregon moved very dramatically toward direct election of senators even before there was a federal constitutional amendment to that effect. And and this and that's what we're doing in effect, uh, with some of these instagov ideas. So a couple of points. I mean, first of all, um, it seems like this is a very voluntary, you know, plan, and yes. one that it's based on comedy and uh, C-O-M-I-T-Y yes. and cooperation. Yes. Um, Good manners. Right. Very so, British. Well, but could also be American in some ways, um, and perhaps could be helpful in restoring some sense of decorum and and you know and normalcy to the legislative process. We we have traditions like in general, oh, the person who loses concedes and does so graciously and part uh, cooperates in the transition and does a tour of the White House and shows up at the inauguration. And, and, and those are all just traditions, you see, but they were pretty strong, we thought, until recently. And I think it's more possible to reach agreement than one might think. For, for example, recently the uh, uh, Schumer and, and McConnell were able to agree on a, on a power-sharing arrangement in the Senate. Um, you know, it's 50-50, so it's not exactly clear, you know, how it should work. And so they agreed to various things, including equal membership on committees um, and so forth, and that any, any bill can, be, can come to a vote. Either, either party can request that it come to a vote, not up to the majority leader entirely whether it comes to a vote. So there are, there are things that they were able to agree upon. So it's, I can see that as a, as a benefit to your plan, that it, that it might 
you know, it's sort of a Kyoto kind of thing. You agree to agree, and then you can agree on other things. And in another episode, I do have some ideas for um, uh, enhancing bipartisanship in the Senate. Uh, I've got ideas about committee balance and, and, and the like that I hope we can talk about in another episode, because I think we need more of that. Yeah. So this plan came out of your, your book, uh, The Constitution Today, which is your, your most recent book. And that book, though, is uh, from a few years ago now. So I, uh, what, what have I done for you lately is what you're well, asking? What, what are you going to do for us soon? We, want, we need some more or more to read here. Okay. Uh, well, um, thanks for that setup. Uh, and as, of course, Andy, you know, because uh, you read it more carefully than anyone in the world, probably myself included, I've just finished a new book. Um, it's uh, called The Words that made us. The subtitle is America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. Uh, And it's a big epic history book that takes you, the reader, through the American Revolution and the Declaration of Independence uh, and the early state constitutions and the Northwest Ordinance and the Grand Federal Convention and the ratification of the Constitution and the Washington Presidency and the Bill of Rights and then John Adams as president and then uh, the uh, Alien and Sedition Acts and uh, the very um, exciting and dramatic uh, election of 1800 between a sitting president and a sitting vice president and all the way through the, then the, the Louisiana Purchase and all the way up to 1840. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a book in which I tell the reader stories about George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and uh, Adams and Jefferson and Madison and Franklin, the, the big six founders especially, and, uh, and the words that made us, that made the United States, the, 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 uh, the story of how America becomes America, how Americans become Americans, how we stop being just a, Britain, a British folk in the New World and, and become uh, our own distinct people in the world. Um, and uh, yeah, the Constitution today, we've been talking about this, uh, that collects op-eds that I've written, little small pieces over the years, and Instagov was something I, I thought about back in 2010, um, and the Constitution today was, was published in 2015, and, and then uh, a paperback edition in 2016. Um, now we're in 2021, and uh, and this is the, the new book. I've been working on it for a long time, and Andy, you know that, of course, because you've read every word of it. Um, and uh, Several times. <laughs> um, and it's coming out in May. Um, and in fact, I've, we, I've got the galleys, um, and um, I think actually on the website, people can, can see a little bit more about it. And uh, That's right. Uh, so we do have a little information about it, and we'll have more as we get closer, I think, you know, obviously on this podcast, we're, we're going to be talking about some of the themes that, that, the, uh, that the book brings up. And, and I think I'm really looking forward to that because I think that it's extremely uh, provocative. Now, you know, as a, as a reader of that book, um, you know, Professor Amar is a scholar of the Constitution. And when he says the words that made us, what comes to mind is that, okay, this is another book about the Constitution. But really, although it, it certainly does address the Constitution, um, it's, by no, it's not repetitive of, of, of what he's written before. And in fact, it's, um, the thesis goes beyond, well beyond the Constitution. In fact, the words that made us come from a variety of sources. They come from newspapers. They come from... Uh, you know, regular people. They come from judges. They come from state constitutions, from the Federalist Papers, from all, all kinds of sources. So I think that that uh, brings us to a, a, a wider theme, which is that this is really a history book. Absolutely. Um, and um, it's chronological. Uh, there's a lot of narrative there, there's analysis but, uh, uh, of, of, of people and of texts, but a, a, a lot of storytelling, a lot of character development. There are chapters on Washington, Hamilton, Je- Adams, Jefferson, Madison, John Marshall, 
uh, Joseph's story. Andy Jackson gets a chapter uh, uh, all about him. And in that chapter, of course, um, uh, I will also tell the readers about his contemporaries, John C. Calhoun, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, etc., etc. Um, so it's a big, and I do mean big, it's long. Um, you'll get your money's worth out of this one. It's a big history book. Think War and Peace. Think Lord of the Rings. <laughs> You know, I think this, you know, to some this might sound like a plug, but really I think we're just both really excited about it. It's been a, a long journey that I've uh, observed and had the privilege of being somewhat a part of. And, and I'm to, just to, to put it to mildly, it. to put it mildly, Andy. Well, I'm just really excited about sharing it with all of you, and we'll be talking about it more, um, you know, as, as time goes on. But, uh, but for today, um, you now have an entirely new perspective on the lame duck, and... Uh, well, I'm sure it'll come up more in other ways in the future. But on the website, you'll, that's akilamar.com, uh, you'll find Instagov as well as we'll put some other stuff up there. Maybe we'll put a clip from Casablanca or something like that. Anyway, check out the website and you'll find some, some interesting things. And one final thing, um, we should remind our audience about some of the guests we're going to have coming up. Yeah, very exciting. So um, the great Bob Woodward has, has agreed to to come on the show and that's... That's something I'm very much looking forward to. And uh, Nina Totenberg from NPR, Neil Katyal, one of my favorites, someone I've gotten to know a little bit. I'm very excited about that. Um, John Farrick, the, uh, the author or draftsman of the 25th Amendment. Which we've been talking about. Which we've been talking about, exactly. And, uh, and, and more, plenty more. You'll be hearing about it. So until then, thank you very much. Thanks, as always, Andy. 